presenting this month's special series, Focus on Sports Medicine. We're talking to experts in the field about sports and exercise-related injuries and the latest advances in diagnosis, treatment, and prevention to help your patients stay active. Drugs and sports. Can genes outwit testing? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to our ReachMD special series exploring sports medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me is Dr. Don Catlin, Chief Executive of Anti-Doping Research in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Catlin is the former head of UCLA Olympic Analytical Labs and has written and lectured extensively on the subject of testing for performance-enhancing drugs. He has supervised the world's most respected facilities for analyzing biological samples from athletes. Today we're going to be talking about drugs and sports, and can genes outwit testing? Don, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about your medical background and how in the world you got into this particular area of research. Yes, how in the world did I? I sometimes wonder. I was going through life in a very routine way. I was at UCLA, young professor in internal medicine teaching medical students, making rounds and all that sort of thing. And then one day the IOC sent an emissary over to talk to me about developing a lab that would be used for the 1984 Olympic Games. And there was no laboratory in the United States. There were only two or three labs elsewhere in Europe and Paris and Germany, I think, London. And the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, insisted that there be a lab Otherwise, there would be no games in Los Angeles. Had you any particular expertise in chemistry or toxicology? Or I'm a classic internist in medical school and all of that, but I've had a special bent toward pharmacology and measurement. And when I was at Walter Reed, I did do some sort of testing, but I really was not experienced in mass spectrometry and all the things that I needed to learn. And so when... The IOC members came and showed me the list of what I had to figure out how to detect. And I looked and I said, well, you know, I really don't know a lot of these drugs. They're not drugs we use here in America. And uh, I don't know them all. And I really don't know, can't really do what you want. So they went away. Well, but they came back a month later and they said, well, by the way, you will, the university will receive a substantial sum if you do this. Well, you know, that makes department chairman sit up. And so uh, off we went with a $2 million grant in a three-year project, and I was the head of it. And so I just rolled up my sleeves, started learning a lot about mass spectrometry, brushed up on my chemistry, and started hiring people that could help, and off we went. And the rest is history, huh? Well, actually, after the game, we did the testing, and we learned a whole lot, but after the games, we closed. There was no demand. Nobody wanted testing in the United States of America. And so everybody went away, and I went from a staff of 40 down to two or three in the space of a month after the games. And then about a year later, the U.S. Olympic Committee called and said, hey, you know, I think you better, can you rebuild that lab? we got a drugs and sport issue. To keep in mind, this is 84, 85, and, and it wasn't a dining room table every night topic. Well, yeah, I, I rebuilt it, and then 
things started to flow and they've not stopped, frankly. Let me start with something that might be an unusual question for a medical show. Are you a baseball fan? I used to be. I used to be a Red Sox fan, but lost my taste for it. Tell us about uh, sort of how you lost your taste for it. Well, you know, when you wander around in the cesspool of drugs and sport for a while, you get to realize how deep and complicated it is and how many different kinds of drugs in virtually every sport. And you can't sit there anymore and just look at the tube and feel that people are clean. It just doesn't work that way. They're not. Well, let's talk about some of the drugs and some of the testing. There's a lot of, obviously, a lot of performance-enhancing drugs out there. What has been your experience are the most commonly used or abused drugs? based on, well, let's just say over the last maybe five years or so? Well, the two biggest classes, without a doubt, are the anabolic androgenic steroids, and in that group, particularly testosterone. And the other big group is EPO or epigen. If you can cover those two drugs, you pretty much dealt a mighty blow. But within that class, there are many. I mean, there's 45 foreign anabolic steroids, and we have to be able to test for all of them. And do they all have a different fingerprint on mass spectroscopy? They do. We have to know each of them. We have to know their metabolism. We have to know which metabolite to look for. And then once we got those pretty well covered, which took 10 or 12 years, then they shifted to endogenous steroids where the fingerprint is the same as the store-bought drugs. So you got to figure out a way to distinguish them, and that's a big part of what we've been trying to do because... Athletes will use the endogenous ones because they know it causes headaches for us. I have some familiarity with uh, drug of abuse testing, and I always had the sense that it was spy versus spy. We'd get better at detecting drugs. People would get better at masking them or creating new ones. Has that been your experience as well? It has, and it is a game of cat and mouse, but it took a giant step forward around 2003 when the federal government, for unknown reasons, decided to step in. Before that, they really didn't, and I would write letters to the FDA and say, why don't you pull these things off the market, and they don't have a staff and whatever. But the Balco thing broke it wide open, and government was right there, and they stayed right there. And they have tools that they can use that are quite revealing. They tap email traffic. They tap phones. They do all that sort of thing. And that's changed the landscape dramatically. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to a special series exploring sports medicine on Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Don Catlin. We're talking about drugs and sports. Don, you've been in this business for a long time, and I assume that the tests that were used looking at uh, androgenic steroids have changed and got better over the years. Is that, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, they gradually move forward. We have gotten better. We learn a little bit more about the metabolism. Our chemistry is a little better. The instruments are a little bit better. It inches forward really every day, and occasionally there's a giant step. We were kind of all interested in an article that was uh, reported in the New York Times not too long ago about a study in Sweden where apparently there's some genetic differences in individuals that throw another variable into this uh, testing for androgenic steroids. Could you tell us a little bit about that study? I know it wasn't yours, but I'm sure you know about it. I know the 
study quite well. I was actually working in the same area. And then, uh, yes, uh, she scooped us. She used some tools that we didn't know how to use. Basically, what they showed was that during the metabolism of testosterone, only testosterone, there is a glucuronide group that's, that's added. And for whatever reason, some people have a limitation in how much they can glucuronidate testosterone. And our test, our urine test, is based on measurement of the so-called TE ratio, testosterone to epitestosterone ratio. And some people just don't form testosterone glucuronide with any great rapidity, and that gives them low testosterone levels and basically sort of a license to cheat. It's a genetic defect. It's we, we know the genes. The young lady worked it all out. You either have a double dose, in which case you can take all the testosterone you want and you don't budge your TE ratio very much, but those are only, oh, probably less than 15% of the population. So it's not all that common, but it's something that sport has to deal with because we we use the TE ratio as our marker for whether somebody has used testosterone. So we've had to develop a new marker, and we're going to have to figure out what we're going to do about this subpopulation of people that have the license to cheat. Is that subpopulation in any way geographically located? Do we know that that genetic mutation is concentrated in any populations? We do know that the Asian males, it's a male disorder, not female, have it more commonly than non-Asians. So if you look at the breakdown of the ethnicity, Asians account for about 80%, and African-American, white, and Mexican-American are the, all the others. There's no difference in the other ethnicities, but Asian men have a predilection to have this double-dose missing gene. Is this research going to impact the way testing is done at the next games in Beijing? Well, <laughs> it should, but it may not. It takes time to figure out how best to deal with this, and there is not uniform agreement among the parties as to how to do it. Some people feel that you ought to go directly to something called carbon isoratio. Some people feel that you ought to characterize the gene in each and every male and find out whether you have the missing links, in which case to a different kind of test. That sounds expensive. Yeah, that's where it's at at the moment. It's really just sort of come up, and I'm not sure how much that we're going to be able to accommodate for this issue. Is your lab involved in testing in Beijing? No. I will be there as a member of the International Olympic Committee sport group, which goes to the games and watches over things in the lab. My own lab has done three games, Los Angeles, Salt Lake City, and Atlanta, all the games in this country. But when the Olympics are held in other countries, the host country develops a lab. How is it that your industry, those of you that are involved in testing for such things, end up hearing about new drugs or new masks for drugs? I guess I'm wondering, how do you know what you don't know? Well, that's sort of what I specialize in. I'm out there prowling around, listening, reading email, awful lot of sources of information. But basically, the way we find designer steroids, and we've 
we've found a couple already, or well, more than two, is just hard work looking at results of the tests and the mass spectrometer and going through page after page of graphs and looking for any clues that might suggest that something is going on. So uh, it doesn't sound likely that you're going to run out of things to look for in the near future. No, there's a lot of possibilities. We've got the big ones now. THG, tetrahydrogestronone, was, was a big one. That changed everything around. I want to thank Dr. Don Catlin for being our guest. We've been talking about drugs and sports and whether genes can outwit testing. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to a special series exploring sports medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or to listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Sports Medicine. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at reachmd.com. Free CME on ReachMD is now easier. Link to ReachMD's free custom application for your iPhone at ReachMD.com.